Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Perhaps you do not know how much you need God to come as a woman in labor, a birthing spirit hovering over creation, holding within her the memory of you nursing at her breast. Or to surprise you, Perhaps you do not know how much you need God to surprise you in ordinary places, searching in the fields for sheep, uprooting his garden, keeping her bees, a a bird roosting in a tree. If you look closely as you walk, if you pay attention with your eye on the book and the world, the blessing will be as near as the dirt, as close as the air, a sprouting tree, a rushing fountain. And if you rage or fear, if tears are your bread, God is there in the middle of it, a steaming pot, a raging she-bear, a smoking kiln, or perhaps a fire, always fire. I'm uh, very grateful to uh, be here with each of you and begin a new series uh, for this fall, uh, it fits very well. Dallas and I have prayed a lot this summer and reflect a lot on where Awakens at and what 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 the Bible would say and and what would uh, kind of build us up, encourage us, and uh, challenge us to go deeper in our journey with God. So, uh, we are doing a series um, courageously on the Book of Numbers. Um, the Book of Numbers very cleverly begins with a very long and boring census, which I think is a security measure to keep people out. <laughs> because it is a dangerous and radical text, and I look forward to uh, beholding it with you. So, in my life, I've heard a lot of sermons. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I've read a lot of books. And I have heard um, a lot of what uh, I would call greeting card theology. Uh, A way of framing life as if there's always an easy answer. Um, We sometimes um, meet people who are suffering or going through a complicated situation, and we offer an easy answer, like, don't worry, it'll all work out, and things like this. I wonder if young Raven wants to go to Sunday school. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, where are his parents? I feel like Rowan is being accosted by young Raven, and Rowan is not having a good time. Okay. All right, that's okay. We are in this together. I remember several years ago um, something that rocked uh, my family's world. Um, A cousin of mine uh, was driving with her husband and three kids, and there was uh, a horrible car accident, and um, not all of her family survived that car crash. And, uh, of course, my whole family and, and her whole town and her whole church and um, so many people kind of flooded in with, with food and, and gifts and words of love and words of um, encouragement. And I remember um, one time my cousin posted this thing on Facebook and she said, please stop. Stop sending me notes that say the things. 
stop. I don't want anyone else. This is in like the throes of the greatest agony a human can experience. She said, stop telling me God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Stop telling me this will all work out because all things work out for the good of those who love him. Stop telling me that it will be okay or that I should pray or rejoice always or have more faith or that maybe all of this was part of God's plan to equip me to comfort someone else who would suffer this way one day. I don't want to hear any of it. Keep the greeting card theology away is what she was saying. Please stop. Sit and be present in my sorrow. But don't tell me this was part of God's plan or that there is an easy answer. And for me, um, I think that shocked a lot of folks who were just trying to help. And of course, everybody uh, was sort of grateful for her honesty and we're, we're happy to make space for her grief and however she was processing it. But at the time, I was studying the Old Testament, and I thought, this is one of the reasons I really love the Old Testament, because <laughs> you're not going to find greeting card theology in those pages. The Old Testament is a dangerous place to dwell. There are no easy answers. It's downright problematic in some passages. Sometimes it's embarrassing. The Old Testament seems to be a peculiar witness to the elusive and irascible nature of God and a peculiar witness to the elusive and confounding and confusing human experience. I don't think it's for kids. I don't think it's for new believers. And I'm really grateful that the book of Numbers begins with nine chapters of a long census at the beginning, and then it happens again at the end for a very beautiful reason, but I'll explain that in the coming weeks, perhaps. Um, But I think it's there because if you've ever tried to read the Bible cover to cover, If you made it through Exodus and then you still made it through Leviticus, if you got to Numbers, by the time you were at Numbers 8, you were like, do a quick stop over in Psalms and straight to Matthew. (laughs) So most people have never made it to the book of Numbers, and that's okay. Between the two censuses, or sensei, sensei, at at the beginning. Censuses? The censuses. Between the two censuses, there is um, a wild story. And so I'm looking forward. And, and I think if I were to hear your story, um, your story would be like a wild story as well. And our story at Awakened Church um, has also been a wild story. And we are in the middle of it now, not at the beginning or the end. So the situation, um, basically, just to kind of back it up, is that um, the, this massive community has experienced one thing in common. Um, they've been oppressed or enslaved to the Egyptian empire. Um, the entire group of people that uh, left Egypt uh, weren't all related. Um, it says in Exodus that um, it was a mixed multitude of people. Um, they weren't all like the children of Abraham. There were people from all over the world that became um, part of this community that left Egypt. And leaving Egypt is a big deal. Egypt, at that time in human history and in, in the text itself, Egypt is the center of human civilization. Egypt is the center of human progress. Egypt had the strongest economy. It had the most flourishing religious system. Uh, Egypt managed all of the food supply in the whole known world. Everybody was migrating towards Egypt. Very few people would willingly migrate outside. There was always a flow towards Egypt. Nobody imagined anything beyond its walls. It had all the food and all the water. Where are your parents, young man? (sighs) 
So as you know, probably very well, Moses at one point leaves Egypt. And Moses leaving Egypt is a big deal because, like I said, nobody leaves Egypt. And he doesn't just leave one day. He flees for his life because he has murdered an Egyptian officer. And because of the strictness of the Egyptian law, uh, Moses knows that uh, the death penalty waits him if he were to ever return to Egypt. So he leaves with no plans to ever, ever, ever go back. And one day, a talking firebush uh, calls out to Moses and asks Moses to go back to Egypt. And the text says um, in Exodus chapter 3, I think I have this as a slide. Yay, good. Okay. Um, this is, so this is the words of God to Moses. He says, uh, go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have given heed to you and what has been done to you in Egypt. I declare that I will bring you up out of the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to your voice, God says. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to them, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us now go a three days journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So, very long story short, they leave. <laughs> Pharaoh eventually says, all right, you may go. Um, and, and so Moses leaves, and he takes this massive community of enslaved Hebrews who had been there for hundreds of years, probably almost exactly, like try and imagine this, as long as European settlers have been in this land. That's how long they'd been in Egypt. So they have no imagination of anything beyond it. Um, they leave. And they leave Egypt, it's rather quick, it's rather dramatic, there's fire, there's plagues, there's blood and hail and frogs and locusts, and a sea of water uh, that, where a dry path is made and the, the, the Hebrews walk through it. Um, and it's very triumphant. But on the other side of that Red Sea is the wilderness. There's a very good reason why nobody lives out there. There's nothing on the other side of that Red Sea, it's the Sinai Peninsula, it's completely a place of death. There's no topsoil, no rivers, no wildlife, no trees, no viable life support system whatsoever. The wilderness is a geographical place, like a real actual place you can go. Um, it's also a psychological space. The wilderness, kind of having a, uh, I think um, Michael Buber, where's David? No, nope. okay, well I can just roll with it then. Um, calls it like a, uh, the modern man has a homeless mind. He, he talks this way, like psychologically we can feel displaced. The wilderness can also be economic. Like, uh, I don't know how to leave this system. I can't imagine anything outside of it. And the wilderness, of course, can be very spiritual. I have a lot of friends, and so do all of you, who have, like, used the word deconstructing. Like, not really sure where I fit anymore. Not sure where I belong. And so, when they cross the Red Sea, at first, it's very exciting. In Exodus 15, they're singing and dancing, triumph and wonder, excitement, hope and joy. God is with us. God is with us. Horse and rider, he's thrown into the sea. Uh, hurrah, it's wonderful. Of course, I would give anything um, to experience that certainty and that sense of triumph um, and that sense of not being alone. And then um, immediately, within what seems like a day, reality hits that the wilderness is not a place anybody wants to be. It goes like this. Um, you, most likely, I now realize, cannot read a single word on that slide because there's way too many of them on one. And that's okay. It's up there so... you. Know, you can close your eyes and listen. It says this uh, in Exodus 16. It's only nine verses, but uh, sorry. 
Israel came to the wilderness. <clears throat> the whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Um, just a note, the profound thing is it says, We used to sit beside the flesh pots and eat our fill of bread. Meaning these people would have prepared day in, day out the meat that only the Egyptians would get to eat. They ate bread, not the food from the pots that they prepared. But that was better than the wilderness. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? You are complaining not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, his brother, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Within weeks of celebrating this glorious escape from Exodus, they desperately wanted to go back. Uh, back in, in chapter 15, if you read it on your own, you'll notice they said, at least we had cucumbers in Egypt. At least we knew where the water came from in Egypt. They desperately want to go back. The wilderness is dangerous and terrifying, and they have no clue what's next. No idea what's on the other side. No idea if this is the final destination or not. They said, if only we'd died. Because what is that reality like? Does anybody know? When you can't go back to how things were, you can't even remember what, thinking anything negative about how things were. But you can't survive here in the current state of things. And the only plan Moses had for the future was whispers of ancestral stories about a fertile land and ceremonial songs about divine promises yet to be kept. I imagine those folks there in the wilderness had done their fair share of doubting and deconstructing and wondering if they hadn't made a huge mistake. The wilderness is not a place you can survive. And if you can't go back and you have no idea what's next, it is unbearable. The opposite of faith isn't doubt. Sometimes, if you, if you grew up reading the Bible or, or the Old Testament, um, you maybe have encountered somewhat of an anti-Semitic way of reading the Old Testament. Uh, I certainly did. I don't know about you. Um, maybe if you haven't read a lot of the Old Testament, but you've seen one of the Jesus movies, like Passion of the Christ or the Book of Matthew or something, uh, if you do that sometime in the near future, pay attention. You'll notice that Jesus is presented as the most attractive character in the whole movie, right? He's like a foot taller than all the others. He's got perfect complexion, blow-dried hair. He speaks as if he has a PhD from Oxford, um, and he's gorgeous. And he's just this, you're just like, how could anybody not know that was the Messiah? Look at him. He's perfect. Right? That's how they present it. Like, it's just clear and obvious that Jesus is great. But then notice how the um, directors uh, represent, like, the Pharisees or, like, 
the Jews. They're always like this sinister, like all wearing black, and they're always like, eh. And I, I remember as a kid, I would watch these Jesus movies and be like, I just don't understand. How is it not obvious to everyone that he's the Messiah? He was clearly the Messiah. And it was like, oh, those stiff-necked, hard-headed Jewish people, how could they not see? And so when I would read Numbers or Exodus younger, I'd be like, man, how could they complain all the time? Why did they not understand that God works all things for the good of those who love him? How could they not see that God was clearly with them and that God had a plan? Oh, must just be stiff-necked, hard-headed people. And you kind of can dismiss the characters in the story as being somehow less insightful than, than you the reader or, or me the reader. And I, I've done that. I've read the text many times and thought, oh, poor Moses. Oh, boy, poor Moses. And poor God. Like, after all God has done, don't those people know? Um, there's a text. I love it so much. It, it, I do have a slide for this, and perhaps you can read it. Perhaps not. I'll have to address my... See, I'm used to Zoom, where then you can see it on your screen. So anyway, uh, this is in Numbers, finally, chapter 10. It's a dialogue between God and Moses. And, and see if you can um, notice what's happening here. Do you all remember that scene in The Lion King uh, when Simba wakes, wakes them up? Dad, Dad, come on. And then Mufasa to Nairobi's like, before sunrise, he's your son. Right? Like, oh, he's not mine. No, he's not mine. Because he's whining, he's complaining, and they're like, oh, it's your turn. I do it, David and I, it's like, you're up. <laughs> I changed the last diaper. I don't... Anyway, God and Moses have the same kind of discussion about this unruly baby named Israel. It says uh, in Numbers 10 here, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, all at the entrance of their tents. Then the Lord became very angry, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you treated your servants so badly? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a sucking child to the land that you promised an oath to their ancestors? Where am I going to get meat to give to all this people? For they come weeping to me and say, give us meat to eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone, for they are too heavy for me. If this is the way you are going to treat me, Moses says, put me to death at once. If I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my misery. He's like, why do I have to deal with all these whiny people? You're the one that nursed them. You're the one that birthed them. It was your great plan. I was just a lowly um, shepherd caring for my sheep. And then you're the one that came in the talking bush and made me go back and get them. Why, do, why, why do I got to feed him? Moses had a nice little life for himself with a wife and two kids, a great family over in Midian, uh, Midia. And he's just like, I'm not their parent. You are. Um, and this is the beginning. And, and I remember reading this, and I'd be like, yeah, good call. What a horrible lot in life Moses had. Those people were so horrible and so whiny. And it's kind of this negative view. Um, but we reflect on it here in a moment. I don't think the people uh, acted out of the norm. I think each and every one of us, um, <laughs> we cannot hold it against them that they were terrified and unsure um, of the plan. Moses wasn't a great leader. He wasn't. If you read the story, Moses didn't have a plan. Um, he had a disability. Uh, he had a speech impediment. Um, I'm not sure um, I, if we have um, hear from people with disabilities, sometimes you aren't treated very well or you're not trusted as a leader very well. Um, Moses didn't have any experience. Um, Moses had no rapport. He'd never experienced slavery. He lived as an Egyptian. Um, he was a fugitive. Uh, he didn't want to go back. He didn't want to be there. Um, he didn't have a plan. He didn't like the wilderness. 
Um, he left his wife. He never saw her again after receiving this call. Uh, and, and Moses complains just as much as they do, really. And, and then if you actually read the story and you read it honestly and slowly, you'll notice that sometimes, and I'm being bold here, God isn't the most reasonable character in the story either. I would challenge you in the next 10 weeks to read the book of Numbers. God is sometimes erratic and emotional. God comes like fire. Sometimes this fire that guides them through the night and it's so profound and sometimes a fire that is uncontrollable and consuming human lives and Moses and Aaron are like, what are you doing? Please stop. God disappears and shows up and disappears again and sometimes some people get healed and other people don't. Um, God gives special uh, audience to Moses and Aaron and not to anybody else and the people are so upset. If God is with us, why can't we hear? Would it be so hard for God to just speak and meet with each of us? And they get upset and they long to go back to Egypt. Perhaps the Egyptian gods were simpler. Perhaps the gods in Egypt were more accessible, more consistent, even if only for those at the top. Perhaps we didn't eat meat in Egypt, but we sat by the flesh pots and we knew it existed. So the book of Numbers invites us to question and unlearn everything we thought we knew. Because here's what I do see when I read the book of Numbers. The people there were the same as you and I. Anxious, suspicious, frantic, disappointed, afraid, unsure, divided, a lot of conflict, and they were frail. They were nervous. Can you imagine going three days without water and having two little children? I would be angry. I would be upset. Imagine caring for your elderly grandmother and you're like, we're going to walk how many miles without any water? What? All of us. How many of you tried to do a backcountry camping trip with two kids this summer? <laughs> right? Your marriage survived that. Now imagine like 400,000 people. It's not going to be a good time. They were nervous. They were afraid. And they had every reason to be nervous and afraid. Moses, here's what else I know. No matter how angry he was, no matter how betrayed he felt by these people, he continued to intercede on their behalf. There would be moments in the book of Numbers where the wrath of God like goes out and, and, and people start dying. And Moses doesn't say, ha ha, I told you so. That's what you get. That's... I wonder if he ever wanted to say that. He never did. He would run, or him and Aaron would run towards the fire and quickly make sacrifices or, or quickly give prayers in order to stop it, to protect the people. No matter how angry or betrayed or upset, he continued to bless and serve and stay. Um, Moses died in that wilderness. He gave his life to that wilderness place. He never got out of it. He never got out, his bones maybe, but he never got out of the wilderness. Oh, Post-mortem, he does appear at the transfiguration. I, you are absolutely correct. He does appear in, in Matthew's gospel, that's right. <clears throat> but as far as uh, the context of the Old Testament, Moses dies in that wilderness. And then there's God. God's character in the book. Um, I think the reason the Old Testament is sometimes a terrifying place to be is because of the God that inhabits the text. We encounter, in the book of Numbers, a God who feels great pain. A God who is capable of being vulnerable. 
a God who is capable of suffering, of being jealous, of feeling angry, of feeling abandoned, of saying, how could you keep abandoning me? He, he tells, later on, generations later, he says, my people abandoned me just like they did when I took them out of Egypt. God is a deeply misunderstood character in the story. And yet, bound by the terms of an ancestral covenant, his faith in the human potential for cooperation with him, to be his co-creators and his co-conspirators, although that faith is shaky, it is unrelenting. He believes that these humans will bear his image. And he never gives up. He never gives up hope that salvation is possible. There's a moment in the book of Numbers where God goes to Moses. I, I, I really encourage you to read Numbers on the next, in the next 10 weeks. And he says, Moses, what if, hear me out, we just kill everybody, <laughs> and then me and you, you could have some sons, and we could um, like switch the plan, and Moses, you could be kind of my chosen one, and, and through you, children could come, and we could start afresh. And you'll notice that Moses isn't in any of the genealogies because Moses said no. We're not going to give up on these people. We're not going to give up on this place. And so the book of Numbers shows us that there is no greeting card theology in here. It shows us that the opposite of faith isn't doubt. And it shows us that the opposite of courage isn't vulnerability. You see, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, uh, in the Old Testament, I know we are monotheist, that's an important part of our faith. But in the Old Testament, um, th they acknowledged that other gods existed, they just knew that you had to pledge allegiance only to your god. So they certainly served only one god, though they believed that other gods existed. And in that ancient mindset, um, the gods were connected to place or land. So there's gods in Egypt, and those gods care about Egypt and protect Egypt, but those gods don't, you know, give a rip about what's going on in Babylon or on other parts of the world. There's Philistine gods, there's Canaanite gods, there are Babylonian gods, eventually there's Greek gods and Roman gods, um, and each of those gods are con connected to a particular place. So for example, if we imagined Canada working the same way in 2021, imagine there'd be like a god in BC and a god in Alberta. Now if I worship the god in Alberta, as long as I'm in Alberta, that god could hear my prayers, and that god is responsible to care for me. But if I cross over into BC, the Alberta God, this is how the ancient mindset worked, the Alberta God could no longer hear your prayers because the Alberta God doesn't live in BC. He lives in Alberta. So you go to BC, immediately you go to the, the temple or the, the, an altar and you make a sacrifice to say, BC God, I acknowledge that you exist. I don't mean any harm. I've not brought any secret idols to my Alberta God. I'm not trying to like conquer BC for my God. I'm just here to like buy some horses, whatever. And then I'm, I mean no harm. Please don't hurt me. And then you come back. You're about to cross back to Alberta. You quickly stop at the border there at the temple or the, the altar for your Alberta god, and you're like, I'm back. See, I didn't bring any BC idols. I'm not here to make the BC god get access to your land. I'm here. I missed you. I'm so glad to be back. You are my god, and sing songs forever. And that was just how their understanding worked, okay? <clears throat> so uh, this is why. Um, Sarah, can you go back to the first text, actually it was maybe a long one that, no, uh, yeah, this one, yeah, great. At the very end here, this is why, I don't know if you've ever noticed, God never once speaks to Moses while Moses is in Egypt. He can't. Moses had to leave Egypt, go to the wilderness, and it was in the wilderness that the burning bush spoke and said, Moses, I have a plan. You go to Egypt, you get the people, bring them back out to me, and we're going to have a party. We're going to do a three-day worship festival. 
Moses goes to Pharaoh and has to say, um, this is the bottom three lines there, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us now go a three days journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. In their imagination, it's not an option. Like, like I, maybe this is not obvious. Don't you think Pharaoh could be like, can they just have a three-day sacrifice here? Could they just do it here? Why do they have to do a three-day? This seems complicated. There's a lot of them. But in their understanding, you couldn't. The Egyptian gods would never allow it. They have to leave Egypt and go meet their god in the wilderness. And so Moses has to keep going back and forth to have like these connections with God. Um, God isn't heard in Egypt. God is heard in, in the wilderness. And there's something there that's very profound. Anybody, I don't know, I, should I do show of hands? Like, do you relate? Do you feel at, at, in any way in your life right now that you're in like a wilderness place? What do you say? Like, what's next? I don't know. I can't go back. This sucks. Given the Old Testament understanding of like gods in place, you can flip through the pages from Genesis to Revelation, and it seems that the God of the Hebrew people the God revealed in Jesus Christ, the God whose spirit animates the church, his place is the wilderness. He's a wilderness God. In Isaiah 43, this is a text we often quote. Um, this is the next slide, but now it's a few forward. Oh, see, look how well you can read that one. Nailing it. Um, in Isaiah 43, which is a, a wilderness text, God's people live in the wilderness for um, most of the whole biblical narrative. Very little time do they actually have a land of their own where they are secure and safe and everything's going well. Very short amount of time. For the most part, they are wandering in the wilderness one way or another. In Isaiah 43, the prophet says, Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, in rivers, in the desert. He's in the wilderness, and he's a voice calling, I will make a way. Although the wilderness is a place of death without any viable life support system, if you read this story, within a day, bread comes from heaven. Rocks gush forth with water. There's meat that appears supernaturally. Although Egypt would have us believe that this is a barren place where nothing can live. That God who resides there promises, taste the dust, see if it's sweet. There is life here. If you recall the old stories of Elijah, that's the next slide, it's just a picture. The old stories of Elijah. Elijah was sent, this is uh, several generations after Moses. Um, he's sent into the wilderness, away from the place where God lives, away from like Jerusalem, away from the land where you think God is. Go out into the wilderness, away from Israel. Even it's a, though it's a time of famine and there's no food there, the ravens will feed you. <laughs> food will come. It will be brought. And Elijah is sustained in the wilderness completely outside of Israel. And Elijah goes back and forth, in and out. And Elijah knows, if he knows anything at all, that the wilderness is alive with wonder. These texts, these stories these sagas um, tug on the fabric of our social expectation. The wilderness dismantles our assumptions about where food comes from, dismantles our assumptions about who is worthy to attend the feast. And so in conclusion, we know, and imagine anew with me, if you will, 
Jesus reveals to us the wilderness God. Jesus comes with stories of ravens and lilies and sparrows. He comes with obscure teachings about farmers in their soil and sowers in their seed. Jesus comes making bread appear from nothing, wine from water. Jesus comes, uh, there's a slide with a picture of Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus comes gathering the lost ones, whispering to their weary souls, stay awake and wait with me. Finds folks who've been exiled to the wild places, who've been outcast, who've been unheard and unloved. And he says, blessed are you who weep now, you who mourn, you who are afflicted. Jesus comes revealing to us the wilderness God to a table set, saying, do this in remembrance of me. He speaks obscurely. He says things like, in part, but not yet in full. He says things like, where I am going, you cannot follow, but I will be with you always. On the cross, we see a God who isn't at home in the world. We see a God who refuses to leave without us. We see a God who lives in that wilderness place, and all who sojourn there are his neighbors. The poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, the merciful, Jesus stands and boldly proclaims, they are the salt of the earth. And so, for those of you who find yourselves in the wilderness, between homes, who know they can never go back, but also aren't sure what it looks like beyond this, those who are waiting impatiently, those who are wandering, my blessing for you, my hope for you, is that you would be present to this wild space. Look around. You would taste the dust. Notice the stones. Listen to their singing. When Jesus says, when marching into Jerusalem on a humble donkey, and the Pharisees and, and the leaders get upset and say, make these people stop shouting. Jesus says, ah, even the stones would cry out if you were to silence them. He's familiar with the sounds of the wilderness. There is life here. There is life here. And so, I'm not always very good at this when I preach. I acknowledge and I'm working on it. An application part. Look around. Literally, look around at the people around you in this room right now. It's weird sometimes being up here. I think a lot of these faces weren't here two years ago before COVID. I think a lot of the times people in the last couple of weeks come in and not a lot of people greet them and say hi because everyone thinks everyone else is new. Right? <laughs> you think you're the newest person here. You don't know that half the, like, like it's, a weird, it's a weird place. It's like, uh, is this my community? Are these my people? I don't know you. Where are my people? Um, it's a weird feeling. I acknowledge that. And so look around. You see some unfamiliar faces, some who are familiar. Friends, these are your wilderness neighbors. You are in this place together. So I would challenge you this month, this next 10 weeks, as you read numbers, reach out. Connect, walk together in this wilderness place. Go for walks in this neighborhood together. Look for bursts of life happening here, even in the midst of these difficult times. Risk joy, risk hope, risk gentleness and patience with one another. I'm going to commit to read numbers um, like all the time throughout these next 10 weeks. 
I'm going to commit to journal through what this story, where it meets me in my wandering right now. I challenge you to do the same and to share your stories with one another. I challenge you to trust your elders that they know something you don't yet know about God in this place. And I challenge each of us to look people in the eyes. We can't see the bottom half of their face anymore. Um, look them in their eyes and acknowledge that when the spirit moves, we move too. So let's uh, be together and settle in in these next 10 weeks because we want to go back. We know that we can't. We don't know what's next. And so let's imagine the wilderness God meets us here. Uh, I'm going to read a poem, the same one David read. And there is a slide for it. I think when David read it, he didn't point that out. Um, so you could go back to the very beginning. Sarah, sorry, it's like a wilderness journey on the keyboard for you there. Nope, nope, nope. Back the other way. At the end of the singing, but before the picture of the long road. Oh, my God. Yes, yes, there's, there, there it is. That's the one. Brilliant, perfect. This is a blessing for readers of the book of Numbers. And uh, I can show you um, each line is uh, citing a, a scripture verse in the Old Testament. Perhaps you do not know how much you need God to come as a woman in labor, a birthing spirit hovering over creation, holding within her the memory of you nursing at her breast. Or to surprise you in ordinary places, searching in the fields for sheep, uprooting his garden, keeping her bees, a bird roosting in a tree. If you look closely as you walk, if you pay attention with your eye on the book in the world, the blessing will be as near as dirt, as close as air, a sprouting tree, a rushing fountain. And if you rage or fear, if tears are your bread, God is there in the middle of it, a steaming pot, a raging she-bear, a smoking kiln, or perhaps fire, always fire. <laughs>